Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. As usual, we have an outstanding panel today, making his Lincoln Project podcast debut, Theron Johnson, a political strategist and consultant who has worked for Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, Congressman John Lewis, and President Barack Obama. Thanks for joining us, Theron. Thank you. It's great to be here. And joining us with her Leslie Jones-approved background, political strategist, crisis communications consultant, and Lincoln Project senior advisor, Susan Del Percio. It's great to have you back on, Susan. Great to be with you. And Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike Madrid. It's always great to have you back on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. On today's episode, we're going to break down the latest attempts by Donald Trump and his allies to undermine, overthrow, nullify, pick a word, the results of the presidential election, the Trump campaign's post-election grift, and the shady stock trading of David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. So let's start with the election. There are a couple of stories about undermining the election I want to get to, but let's start with the video Trump put out on Wednesday. Here's how the Associated Press described it. Increasingly detached from reality, President Donald Trump stood before a White House lectern and delivered a 46-minute diatribe against the election results that produced a win for Democrat Joe Biden, unspooling one misstatement after another to back his baseless claim that he really won. Now, Trump called it the most important speech of his presidency, but mostly recounted the same litany of unsubstantiated allegations of voter fraud that he's been making for the last month. And as a side note, it will actually have been a full month since he made his claim that he won the election on election night. Trump claimed that the election system was under coordinated assault and siege without any evidence. So Susan, I want to come to you first on this. What was your reaction to this unhinged video? Well, it comes down to how many times does Donald Trump want to lose the election? He keeps losing every week, almost every day he has a lawsuit somewhere and he loses it. He's lost a Georgia recount three times already. In Wisconsin, he not only did he lose it again, but Joe Biden got more votes as a result of the recount. He is clearly unhinged and just focusing, of course, on himself. Of course, it's very disturbing that he is now focused on just spreading lies, trying to undercut our democracy instead of focusing on people's lives, which is really when you talk about the most important speech of your of your political career, it should be about the people that you represent, but not in Donald Trump's case. With him, it's always about defending himself and putting himself above country. Yeah, Theron, I'd love to hear your reaction to this because, you know, we haven't had you on before. And I wonder if you are sort of like some people desensitized to, to this or are you just as alarmed every single time it happens? What was your take? Well, I think the thing that you got to understand here in Georgia, I mean, we are inundated with just political ads and we are ground zero 
as far as the future of our democracy in this country. And so many Democrats here are just outraged to to the point where Susan made that it's got to be about the people. It's got to be about turning the page and moving forward and doing what's best uh, for our country. But unfortunately, you know, this has been a, just a month long temper tantrum from this president that we have been negatively affected here in Georgia. I mean, these sort of baseless, false claims that the president is making is making Georgia uh, more radical is making Georgia more dangerous uh, at a time where we have election workers that are receiving threats. Our secretary of state, our Republican secretary of state spouse is receiving explicit sexual text messages that are totally inappropriate uh, from supporters of Donald Trump. And you had a person come out yesterday uh, and, and this week in Georgia say that he condemned he wanted the two U.S. senators to condemn this type of behavior. And so I I'm not going to let it get in the way of some of our democratic success here in Georgia, but it's, it is taking an effect on the American people in particular here in Georgia. Mike, what did you think? I think one of the great ironies is Donald Trump is exactly right in this instance, which is this is the most consequential speech of his presidency because it it was probably what he will be most remembered for in, in, in a time and era where he has been kind of uh, numbing us as Americans to kind of the, the irascibility and the craziness that has been um, put out on Twitter to have video of him saying, this is the most important speech of of my presidency, and then rolling out this soliloquy of crazy. Um, I think that is probably what will live on for the ages. In many ways, this is the end uh, of an era, of the Trump era. But as as we've talked about before, it's also the end of the beginning right this this is genuinely i think an important speech for his presidency because what he is saying is there is a group of us that will never ever relinquish what this was and what this meant and that will uh, that will live on for another 15 20 30 years in the american political vernacular um and it will be remembered in history as a moment and this is who this person was who occupied the highest office in the land i think it's an immediate threat to the body politic I think in many ways it is a is a true call to arms. I think it is a seditious act. And as I mentioned, this is this is a, a concerted effort and an attempt to permanently peel off a group of voters who do not want to see America become what it is becoming. There is no compromise, there is no understanding, there is a refusal to to follow the hands of time moving forward as we we progress as a different country and as a different nation is an attempt to say, no, we are, this is who America is, and this will be Custer's last stand. It will be the Alamo. It will be a symbolic event where ultimately it is the end, um, but will be remembered for what it was trying to do in 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 a in a way to preserve something that can never be preserved. This video came out as two Trump allies, Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell, held a rally in Georgia to continue pushing their baseless allegations of voter fraud and election rigging. Wood went as far as telling Trump supporters in Georgia not to vote in the January runoffs. So, um, you know, Mike, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then Theron, I'd love to hear yours. Like what, what impact could that actually have and what impact is it having on the two runoff races? Well, I think it's very important to remember that Donald Trump ascended to the presidency by running against the Republican Party. He was that outsider candidate who literally made it part and parcel to run against the establishment wing uh, and the hierarchy and basically the basic premises of, of, of modern conservatism. 
what he believes, and he's never been a, a Republican. You know, you've heard us never yeah. Trumpers and, yeah. and Lincoln Project Republicans saying this. This is what we're talking about, folks. This is an attempt to rip <laughs> off a huge segment of the Republican Party and say, this is mine. These are my adherents. These are not Republicans. These are these are Trumpers. This is Trump's party, and I'm taking it with me. Um, again, not he doesn't care about the party. He doesn't care about the country. He cares about Donald Trump. That's what is happening. And I think he's going to be successful in tearing a wide swath of this off. The question is going to be how big of a chunk is this, right? It's like Thanksgiving turkey. How big is that wing you're going to pull off and how much meat <laughs> coming with it? And we're going to find out pretty quickly. I, I think that that is what is happening. And I think there is a wide segment of the Republican electorate that is going to follow this nationalist movement in the same way that the Le Pens uh, were able to pull off oh, a third of the voters in France yeah. and just become a populist, nationalist, white identity party. Yeah. That's what this is. It's a good consumer base. It's a good loyal customer base. It's a good viewership base. And it will serve him uh, electorally or Ivanka or the children or somebody in some way, shape, or form um, as politics becomes part of the family business. Yeah. Theron, what, what do you think Powell and Wood in particular, what do you think that impact is going to be on the races? Yet to be seen, I can tell you this, the Georgia GOP is just in total chaos right now. I mean, let's just walk our listeners through it. Yeah. So Trump loses the race. Biden wins Georgia. Georgia's blue again. Uh, as we, you know, having this conversation, we're still up roughly over 12,000 votes. So there's no mathematical pathway um, from day one of this this sort of new era that we're entering to this new Biden coalition era uh, that he had a chance of winning. And so what's been happening since November 3rd in Georgia, you've had people in the Republican Party just fighting with each other. They've just been threatened, threatening, you know, the secretary of state and our two U.S. senators, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, have just basically stood by silent Ever since they issued a statement calling for the secretary of state to resign, therefore, you do have a a pretty sizable following here of President Trump that have been going to the state capitol and protesting. But these recent comments, this recent display of divisiveness by the individuals that you mentioned shows you that they're exactly trying to do Mm. what we are not trying to do in Georgia, and that is suppress the vote. I mean, in 2018, Georgia was known for a very controversial gubernatorial election where Stacey Abrams, who unfortunately lost, has been on a now almost you know two year sort of journey across the world talking about some of the irregularities, some of the voter suppression issues we had here in Georgia to tell people to write in Donald Trump or to not vote. That is just a big problem for the Georgia GOP. And so Democrats We've got to make sure that we sort of cut through the noise here mm-hmm. and try to get our messages out that we have two outstanding uh, U.S. Senate candidates and, and Brother Raphael Warnock, who's a pastor, and also John Ossoff. But unfortunately, all the Republicans want to talk about is this baseless, false claim of voter fraud and continue to attack the two Democratic nominees for U.S. Senate. Yeah. The last thing that we're waiting to see is which Donald Trump are we going to get in Georgia on mm-hmm. Saturday? Will mm-hmm. he come here and continue to criticize an incumbent uh, Republican governor and also criticize the Republican secretary of state? Or will he for once on his way out show some level of professionalism 
and show that he can be the president and sort of try to rally votes for these two U.S. senators. I believe the former. I think he's going to come here and be somewhere in Georgia and is going to have a super spreader event and it's going to fire up his supporters. And ultimately, it's going to cost these U.S. these two U.S. senators their seats. So we also saw this week several more Republicans distance themselves from Trump or outright deny the claims of election rigging. Early in the week, there was the video of Arizona Governor Doug Ducey sending the White House uh, to voicemail. And, and Bill Barr told the Associated Press that the DOJ did not find evidence of widespread voter fraud that could change the outcome of the election. And uh, as you mentioned, there in G- Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger have continued to dispute Trump's claims as well. In a news conference earlier this week, Raffensperger told reporters that an election contractor in Gwinnett County had received death threats after conspiracy theorists circulated videos of the 20-something election technician online. So these officials in Georgia in particular haven't seemed like reluctant Trump supporters. I mean, Trump endorsed Kemp in 2018. So why do you think they're abandoning him now? I think that Governor Kemp, and I can only say what he said, and that is, is that he's not going to break the law. He, as governor, cannot interfere in a process that the secretary of state, who, by the way, is also a Republican, that was elected uh, in a constitutional duty uh, for him to administer this election. And so I think what you saw from Governor Kemp is to say, hey, you know, if there was anything I could do, I would do, but I'm not going to illegally interfere uh, in this election. Now, to be fair to the Republicans here in Georgia, while you do see Brian Kemp, the governor, and the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, getting attacked, you have had some Republicans come out recently. You have former U.S. Senator Saxby Shambliss come out uh, this week. You have former Governor Nathan Dill come out this week. And then how can we forget uh, the person who I think was a a true compassionate conservative, and that is former U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson come out this week and tried to defend um, Raffensperger and Kemp, but more importantly, without naming them specifically, just calling for unity within the Republican Party. But unfortunately, Governor Kemp and Raffensperger, who, by the way, Secretary of State Raffensperger said in a statement, I voted for Trump. I mm-hmm. was one of the early endorsers of the Trump campaign during the primary. I sort of hope he would have won. But I've got a job to do. And so unfortunately, Republicans in Georgia have got to really be careful about how exactly what you just heard from Mike. How do you keep these Trumpsters who really are not the true Reagan sort of, you know, Lincoln, you know, Republicans? These are people who are just upset. They're mad and they are just against the establishment and particularly these uh, Democrats who have been able to win in Georgia recently. Yeah. Susan, what's your take on all of this, on the officials, you know, standing like finally a a couple of them anyway, standing up to the president? Well, it's easy to do when the president's on his way out. Let's be clear. Yeah, He is going out the door come January 20th. But also, I think a lot of them realize Donald Trump's shtick only works for Donald Trump. You can't get away peddling his nonsense and think that if you try and tether yourself to it, it will rub off on you and you will benefit. No one benefits from that. I mean, the closest we've seen is in a couple of primaries where it's worked out. Ron DeSantis comes to mind in Florida in 2018. But in a general election, Trump doesn't help anybody. He only is there for himself. So 
whether it's when he comes down on Saturday and Theron's right, like is he, he's going to have the super spreader event. He's going to go out there. I do disagree that he's going to try and unify the party. I think this will be another 46 minute triage going on about just himself and how Georgia let him down. Now, if Trump supporters want to go out there and write Donald Trump's name in on these Senate races, go have at it. That's fine. That's how you want to use your vote. Write them in. Use your Republican vote that way. I have no problem with that because I believe that the Democrats are very motivated and that if they show up in the numbers that they did for Biden, they do have a viable chance at winning these two Senate seats. So if the Republicans want to be that way, so be it. Mike, I want to get your take on this rally really quickly that that Darren mentioned. So uh, just for our listeners, on Wednesday, the Republican National Committee announced that they're hosting a victory rally in Georgia. Donald Trump is set to headline and be joined by Senate candidates Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. It seems a little odd that they'd ask a president who just lost the state to campaign for them in Georgia. But but I, but I want to know what you all think. So, uh, you know, Theron, you, you mentioned this. I'd love to hear any additional thoughts you have. But Mike, can you kick us off here? Is this going to help or hurt the Leffler and Purdue campaigns? Or does it depend, as Theron said, on which Trump shows up? Well, well first off, America, we, we deserve this. This is just spectacularly beautiful. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Come on, you can't make this up, right? Like we deserve a victory rally. A victory rally for a guy just lost. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just perfect. Three times, Mike. He lost three three times. times. Like maybe he's tired of winning the losers game. Like I don't know how this works, but I got we deserve. Maybe he's won the contest for who can lose the state the most times. times. I don't know. Yes, I mean it's beautiful. Having said that, look, what this is really about, I genuinely believe, Trumpism requires blame. You have to have somebody to blame. And his scope of blame has narrowed considerably as he's lost this election, right? It, it was blaming the Chinese you know, for the COVID crisis. It's blaming Mexicans. It's blaming drug dealers and rapists. It's blaming Muslims for whatever he's blaming for. He needs to blame somebody, okay? So now that he's got a limited sphere, he's going to have to blame somebody. And those blamers are the Republican turncoats as he's going to envision them that he would have won if they would have just stayed loyal and just stayed with him. In many ways, what he's doing is he's fighting for really the heart and soul of the Republican Party, but not in the traditional ideological sense that we have always envisioned politics. This is a fealty test. This is a loyalty test. And like I said, it serves him extremely well to be the leader of a tribe. He's not a traditional politician politician in terms of trying to win people by persuasion, he beats them down through fealty, through loyalty. It's always why betrayal was the number one sin, perhaps the only sin that was not redeemable in Trump land or through Donald Trump himself. Once you turned on him as a Lincoln Project Republican or a never-Trumper or somebody who left mm-hmm. the administration, you were ostracized, you were beaten up, you were publicly humiliated, you were sent out like a goat into the wilderness to die of exposure. The problem with that is, as he's lost now, he's got an ever-shrinking base, which he's seeking to command and control. So I'm not surprised at all he's going to call it a victory rally. He's going to continually suggest that he won were it not for these others that were not with him. The conundrum that this puts Leffler and Purdue in is they've now got to take a side. And the problem, the math problem for them is... A lot of Republicans are with with uh, Trump, and I don't mean 55 percent. I mean mm-hmm. like 65, 75 percent, but where they're going to run into trouble 
is this type of activity is very distasteful to the 25% of largely college-educated, suburban, white Republican voters who are like, this is crazy town. Like, I didn't sign up for this nonsense. And at this point, I'm going to let my 401k ride because I've done enough. But these QAnon, you know, electoral fraudsters are just nuts. I can't do it anymore. I won't do it anymore. And if 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 they lose just 5 6%, of this share of the electorate, particularly in the Atlanta burbs, the race starts to look really good for the Democrats running in the special. Yeah. Darren, I saw you nodding a bit there. What are you thinking? I think Mike had some really good points. I would just add a couple sort of caveats to this, you know, locally. So uh, I was very fortunate to be one of the senior advisors on the Biden-Harris team here in Georgia. I've been working in Georgia politics for 20 years. We lost the governor's race in 2002. So we have been waiting 18 years for this moment. Uh, when I was in Chicago in 2012, running the Southern region for President Barack Obama, um, the Democrats in the building at the headquarters would laugh at me when I would ask them to put money in Georgia and don't put money in Florida and North Carolina and Virginia. And so here we go. Fast forward eight years later from 2012, we are now a blue state. But how did we get here? Right. And to Mike's point, we knew that there were a group of people out there that we knew was a part of this Biden coalition. And and yes, African-Americans, particularly African-American women, are and will always be the backbone of the Democratic Party when it comes to voting. But I got to tell the true story. The true story is, is that we had a significant bump with African-Americans uh, in some key areas in the suburban areas, because believe it or not, there are African-Americans and Asians and Hispanics that live in the Atlanta suburbs. So we did better with Hispanic voters than we thought we were going to do. We put a lot of time and effort there. We did better with Asian voters, particularly because we had a competitive congressional 7th district race with Carolyn Bordeaux, uh, Congresswoman-elect, is going to go to Congress and, and serve as well. But we also did extremely well and better than Republicans thought with college-educated, disaffected, Republican, um, suburban white voters. And I may add, with independent white men, men who probably voted for Donald Trump in 2016. But to Mike and Susan's point, this thing has just been chaotic. Ever since he's been asked to govern, he's failed that test miserably. And so what, why is he coming to Georgia? I tell you why. Unfortunately, we do still have some Republicans here in Georgia that only Trump can motivate. But also, you got to remember this. Trump endorsed Brian Kemp with the encouragement from the Purdue's. Brian Kemp selected Kelly Leffler to become the successor of Johnny Isaacson. So I want to know what is Kelly Leffler and David Perdue going to do? And if Susan and Mike are correct, um, uh, Ron, and what you know, what they've been saying that he's going to come down there and attack those guys. Now you have the most powerful governor, Republican in the state, sort of leave, you're leaving a rally with a guy who just, you know, tore him down with, with some of his comments. And so um, this is they believe that this is a base election. They believe that they've got to turn out their Republican base better than our Democratic base. But fortunately for us, we know how to run a base plus election. Mm -hmm. And that plus is that Biden coalition that we were able to develop um, here in Georgia, which ultimately led to his victory. Okay, let's go to the Trump grift. The Washington Post 
reported on Tuesday that Trump's political operation has raised more than $170 million since Election Day. According to CNN, the Trump campaign sent 400 fundraising emails and 125 texts between 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Election Night and this past Tuesday morning. But possibly the most egregious part of this story is that 75% of the funds raised, up to $5,000, are directed to a new leadership pack called Save America. The individual's contribution only goes to the Trump campaign's recount effort after it meets a $5,000 threshold. So if you are a donor and you give $5, $10, $100 to the Trump campaign's appeal for help with their recount efforts, None of that is actually going anywhere near a recount effort. It's going straight to a completely different organization, uh, and that's this leadership pack called Save America. Now, we've seen this over and over again with Trump and his allies, where they'll say one thing and then do another. But Susan, they've spent all this time talking about election fraud, but they're only using a tiny fraction of the donations for the actual court cases. So what does it say about what they actually think of their own fraud argument? Well, I think it shows that Donald Trump is right back in his favorite zone, scamming people. I mean, he scammed people at Trump University, which he had to pay a fine in order to avoid um, any type of prosecution going forward when he um, upon being elected president. And he also had his charitable foundation, which was also fined tremendously and found guilty of breaking many rules and and regulations uh, in New York State. So. This is what Donald Trump does. He scams people now. He scams them out of money that benefits himself. He's scammed people the last four years in a different type of way on the pl- when it comes to governance. And I use that word li- uh, lightly. But Donald Trump is at it again. People ask, why isn't he stopping these recounts? Why does he keep going forward? Because he can raise money. Once he says, I'm out, he doesn't have a vehicle to raise money anymore. And he also looks at it as a vehicle to raise money for a legal defense fund, not the ones pertaining to the election of 2020, but for his own defense fund in New York, which he is petrified of facing the New York state attorney general and the Manhattan district attorney on potentially even facing criminal charges there. So that's where a lot of this money's going to go. Donald Trump can't, we know he's in debt over $400 million. He's got to pay his lawyers and he can't use DOJ as his personal attorneys anymore. He does not care about people. He only cares about himself and to a lesser extent, his family members. But it always comes down to what is good for Trump. We should also note that those two New York-specific investigations that he's facing are ones that he cannot pardon himself for if he tries to pardon himself, which George uh, Conway on the podcast last week mentioned that he might very well do that. But because they're New York cases, not federal cases, he, he, he can't get out of them. And so yeah, I, th- I think that's really worth noting. There's, there's a key part of this, though, that's e- easy to overlook. And that's that this new Save America PAC uh, is what's called a leadership PAC. And these are used to fund expenses that are ineligible to be paid by a campaign or federal office. So they chose this type of vehicle very, uh, very strategically. They're also... Um, 
They also don't restrict politicians from using donor funds for personal expenses. Trump could funnel this money into his own hotels and properties. As you mentioned, he can do whatever he wants with it, essentially, because of this leadership pack structure. Mike, does this surprise you at all? No. <laughs> no. I mean, this is what this is. It's a business. It's a family business. Like I said, to understand what Trump is doing, you first and foremost have to understand he's not just not a traditional politician. What he has found is a business model that works for him. When we were looking at the cash flow of the presidential campaign and trying to figure out how, where all the billions of dollars went, and I, I guess should say I should say millions, it hit a billion. It wasn't multiple billions, at least not that we know of yet. When they were pulling ads down in battleground states yeah. and running out yeah. of cash, it's like, how could you possibly lose or misspend that much amount of money? You have to do it consciously. And we said that jokingly, and then we realized, wait a second, this was absolutely done consciously. Trump has been you know, grifting and pulling out all of this supporter money. It's a business. It's mm. a business to him. He's just selling... Uh, you know, another Trump branded politician as opposed to a Trump steak or a Trump, you know, university degree or a Trump water or whatever else he's selling. This is what he does. This is this is what what he's doing. And I think what he has found is, in many ways, from a business perspective, it's kind of ingenious, is he's developing a more loyal fan base, which is willing to give him money to do whatever it is that he wants to do. This just happens to be the receptacle of the of the the money at this moment in time. But no, it's not a surprise. It's, it's actually quite predictable. Okay, let's talk about insider trading. Um, last week, the New York Times reported that the Justice Department had investigated Georgia Senator David Perdue for possible insider trading after Perdue sold more than $1 million worth of stock in a financial analysis firm. Prosecutors declined to bring charges, but it has drawn greater scrutiny to Perdue's stock trading in the midst of the runoff race against challenger John Ossoff. Back in March, a Purdue campaign spokesperson claimed that Purdue is not involved in day-to-day decisions about stocks, but it was later revealed that Purdue personally contacted a wealth manager at Goldman Sachs and instructed him to sell stocks in a company after the CEO emailed Purdue and referenced upcoming changes in January. I put that in air quotes. The other senator from Georgia, Kelly Loeffler, had her own Senate Ethics Committee investigation into stock trading in the spring. Loeffler sold millions of dollars in stocks while receiving a private briefing on the coronavirus pandemic. While Loeffler was privately selling her stock, she publicly downplayed the severity of the coronavirus pandemic earlier this year. She's also in a runoff election with Reverend Raphael Warnock. So we're looking at two sitting senators who have both used their position their official capacity to get richer. But this has an entirely different level to it because they've both downplayed the impact of the coronavirus publicly while using that information that they got because of their position to make money off of the pandemic. So Susan, let's start with you. And then Darren, I want to go to you. But within the context of all of Trump's actions over the last four years, it can be difficult to understand how egregious this is. So how should voters be thinking about both Purdue and Leffler's stock trading? Well, that's a great point that you make off the top, Ron, is that in the world of Trump, it's not the worst thing we've heard. So what's the reaction? In an, any other time, it would be very significant. But And I think Theron's going to talk more about this. One thing I've heard on the ads and in listening to the two Democratic candidates running is that they're doing a good job of connecting it to COVID and how 
basically these two senators have made money off of COVID while you have been dying. Mm-hmm. Your mm-hmm. family members have been dying. It's not so much the action that I think is the tool to use in this campaign. It's the contrast. These are rich people who could afford all types of great treatment. They make money off of of your business closing. They're doing absolutely nothing in Washington to get you the relief you need, but they are making money financially for themselves. So I think by using that as a tool, it is powerful. And there are other investigations still going on into it. It could be deemed illegal, or at least they could get censored for it. That's not the biggest deal. That's not the thing that matters most. The immediate thing and how it works in this election cycle or the special election is that people are dying and you're making money off of them. Yeah. Darren, what's your take on all of this? I would think Susan is definitely watching the same television ads that I'm watching. <laughs> and, 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 and listen, let's also just bring this into context. While there were some independent investigations that Senator Leffler and Senator Perdue liked to tell people that they were investigated and nothing was there, the problem is the damage is already done. Mm-hmm. What John Ossoff has been able to do, and now Raphael Warnock, because before Raphael Warnock was able was not able to go head to head with Senator Leffler. Now that they're head to head, what they're doing is they're saying, hey, we're for the working class Georgians. We're for the, the people who actually don't even have stocks, that don't have jets, that don't don't live in a triple gated community like David Perdue. Uh, and we're talking about Senator Leffler is the richest U.S. senator. And so her challenge from day one of her candidacy, and to be fair, she did beat Doug Collins, which a lot of Republicans thought was going to do better and beat her. But I mean, she spent so much money. But her challenge since day one is how out of touch she is with everyday Georgians, meaning, unfortunately, listen, I'm all about making money. It's okay. She's done well. But when your husband is basically running the New York Stock Exchange uh, and, you know, she got hit very early about, you know, riding around in, in a jet, which is, again, fine. You can have a private jet. But she's been struggling with being able to relate to Georgia voters. David Perdue, on the other hand, was the original outsider, guys. You got to give him that title. When he yeah. ran in 2014, before Trump sort of stole it from him, uh, but he ran as an outsider. And so he ran on his business platform. And so I think the thing that's unfortunate for him is that now he's getting, I mean, Ossoff is really being able to really highlight the striking similarities in his speech along when this deadly pandemic in, in America was building and was killing people versus what he was saying. It was exactly what President Trump was saying. And so even if they didn't do anything wrong, even if it was a third party uh, sort of doing the investments for you, there's a rule in politics. And this is in this, in this rule. I have to repeat it for people is what did you know? Mm. When did you know it? And what did you do about it once you found out? And that has been the struggle for both campaigns to really explain to Georgia voters, what did you know? What did you do once you found out about this 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 evidence and this in this intelligence briefing about the deadliest pandemic ever that we, you know, we're gonna probably face in this country? And then what did you do about it? And ultimately Warnock and Ossoff has been able to define them as out of touch. But as Susan pointed out, while they were making money, people were dying. I mean, Ossoff has this campaign ad up right now of this African-American woman uh, in rural Georgia talking about her restaurant went from doing very well because of this deadly pandemic. Now they're not making any money and barely 
getting by with just doing takeouts. And she says something that is so potent. Uh, she basically says that while we were here in Georgia trying to sell food and feed people, David Perdue was off basically selling stocks. And so both campaigns have been able to bring a level of humanization to this issue. And it's basically, hey, we're, we're fighting for the little guy while David Perdue and Senator Leffer are fighting to make corporations richer. Mike, do you think this is the strongest uh, message for the two Democratic candidates, the strongest way to win this race? Or do you think there's, you know, what impact do you think it's going to have? And are there other dynamics at play? First, let me say, I, I mean, I could listen to Thrawn about Georgia politics all I day. I had no idea how good this stuff was. <laughs> I'm like, man, that's... Um, you got to come back. Having, yeah, <laughs> I look, I think, Su- and I, I think Susan uh, really um, hit the nail on the head here, too. Well, one of the things that I think is really shocking is like, we're kind of okay with insider trading, right? Yeah. We've kind of become so numb to it. It's like, those just Washington politicians being corrupt. They're all corrupt. Rather have our corrupt guys than those corrupt guys. Remember when we sent Martha takes- Stewart to jail for this, guys? Yeah, <laughs> like, right, Martha right, Stewart. Right. We yeah, sent her to prison. Right. right. <laughs> it's like literally you have to make the case and draw the connection that they're profiting off of your family dying right. to make it be like, okay, now I'll listen to you. Now now I'm disturbed by it, right? Like, And, and we've got candidates that that's where this is at. So I do believe that this is going to be an opening. I'm not sure that this alone, unfortunately, makes the case in and of itself, but I do believe that it does open enough eyes to say, okay, wait, now, now I'm interested. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to be open to this. These aren't just the, the typical charges that we've thrown out in a political campaign. I think it will open enough uh, kind of Republican votes to be able to go like, okay, well, uh, I'm listening. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to hear what these candidates have to say now. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that in and of itself to break through uh, partisanship, uh, the way we become so hyper-partisan, I think is very important. You know, just as a, as a, as a political tactic. Um, there's going to have to be a, some good closing argument. I think that they're going to develop. But I don't think Donald Trump is going to be helping their case, uh, nor do I think that sort of the, the QAnon stuff that's really kind of taken root in, in Georgia Republican politics helps either. Got to remember again, it's just math, as, as it consolidates a bigger share of the Republican vote, it's also turning off enough of these voters to say, hey, if we can find four, five, six, seven percent of Republicans who are just saying, I'm, I'm tapping out, I'm done, I'm off the crazy train, I got to find a different way to do this. Mm-hmm. That's all you need. This is a, this, you know, history is made on the margins. This isn't going to be a, a, a cleavage where, you know, it's a parting of the Red Sea and the Republican coalition where half are on one side and half are on the other. This is very small slivers of the Republican electorate that will be determinative if you see, you know, significant Latino, African-American yeah. turnout and, yeah. and this fight in the Republican base. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the new Georgia, old Georgia stuff that we've been talking about at the Lincoln Project. And I'd love to hear Theron's thoughts on that. Mark, do you want to sort of articulate the framing and then Theron, maybe you can react to that? Yeah. And again, this is part of what we have seen in an overall trend throughout the Sun Belt, right? But it's a particularly acute in Georgia. People have been seeing it for some time. But you know, whenever you're whenever you're pushing, and I want to hear his, his story about this, whenever you're pushing the national party or some of these larger campaigns to con- to to financially contribute in something that is not, you know, a blue or red wall locked down, you got to make a hell of a long case for a hell of a long time before they start to a small trickle of money and then you got to prove the case even more. But there's really three things that that really define a state that compelled us to move in. And I'm going to put them in order of the Lincoln Project's you know, trajectory because that's the way we think. It's the way we approach. Um, but, but it's important to understand that we need all three of these dynamics to work to move states like Georgia and Arizona into contention. 
The first is there has to be a, a higher than national average number of college-educated white voters. The cleavage within the Republican coalition is directly correlates to educated and non-educated voters. Okay, college-educated voters. Um, not to as degree I would like, but to a far greater degree than non-college educated voters have a very reluctant relationship with the Republican Party at this point in time. They're the movable block. It, we saw it significantly with, with women in 2016, greater in 2018. We finally saw a break amongst men, uh, as Darren pointed out, in, in Georgia, right? And we saw those numbers late, and that's why we moved out of North Carolina and went, went hard at Georgia's because we thought we could push that, 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 that group in, and, and we were fortunately very successful with that. So college, you got to have a higher, sorry, long way of saying, Mike Madrid way of saying, got to have a higher than national average of college-educated voters. The new Georgia is all about a new economy. It's all about high-tech workers. It's financial industry. You got media industry. The burbs, as Theron pointed out, are, it's not just white people in the burbs. A very multicultural, college-educated, dynamic, diverse area that, uh, that is really redefining not just the South, but really a new America, uh, right? This is the emergent America. It's not just the new Georgia. Second is you have to have a higher than national average number of senior citizens, 65 plus. This dynamic, this demographic is changing too. It became particularly pronounced in the COVID era as Donald Trump's mismanagement and incompetence pushed senior citizens out of the Republican coalition to a degree that we had not seen before. And third and finally, you have to have in, in a large number of people of color, uh, a, a marketable number of voters of color that can turn out and move the voter model to at least offset sort of rural white votes. You absolutely have that in Georgia. We had it with Latinos in uh, in Arizona. It's why mm-hmm. Texas was mm-hmm. looking as good as it was until late. Had a little bit of a Hispanic hiccup there that we'll talk about in other podcasts. But that's Georgia. Georgia really is at the forefront of this. Its bookend, I would argue, is Arizona. These states have both been trending towards a more centrist position for the past 18 years, as, as Theron was pointing out. Uh, he's exactly right. It's happening throughout the Sun Belt because every one of the Sun Belt states meets that demographic criteria. This is not just a one-off Trump thing. It's not just a one-off Biden thing. This has been trending for a while. And it's it, you know these 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 big political realignments all happen in one night, right? But it's after twenty years of yeah. incremental movements yeah. towards that direction, and that's what we're witnessing at this moment in time. Yeah, Theron, I want to hand it over to you. So, Mike, uh, everything you just laid out is the reason why we won Georgia. So, let's just start with number one: college educated voters. So. One thing that we saw very early on, even before 2018, when Stacey Abrams had a monumental run for governor, is that Atlanta, particularly in the suburbs, is where you want to be. We got the world's busiest airport. So when you look at corporations that are coming here, looking at the workforce, particularly you mentioned tech, um, we have made Georgia, but particularly the Atlanta metro area, the Silicon Valley of the South, right? Because we have great uh, institutions like Georgia Tech. Emory, just to name a few, that are just really training some really good tech people here, right? And we have a mayor and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms who is welcoming to businesses, right? Want to keep uh, people here, retain this talent that we're actually uh, able to really uh, foster. And so what's happening is, is that now all of them live in the suburbs. You're exactly right. 
she has done a really good job, she being Mayor Bottoms, making Atlanta more affordable. Now, we still got a long way to go. I mean, gentrification is real. But we were able to see that there was a trend that started really in 2010 with so many educated voters who were choosing to not just live here for a short term, but they were actually making Atlanta and, the, and Georgia their home. Secondly, you know, one of the places that we're seeing people who want to live because of our airport, because of our culture, because of our diversity uh, in Georgia, but particularly in the metro area, these college educated voters, uh, many of whom are academics uh, because we got great institutions, uh, we saw those voter registration numbers starting to go up. And so what we did on the Biden campaign and also Ossoff and Warnock did this is that we had a very persuasive message to them that really kind of cut through all of the nonsense, all of the negativity from the Republicans. And so we have found that if you give them a reason that makes sense for them to vote for the Democrat in Georgia, we knew that they would turn out. The second thing you mentioned was senior citizens. And unfortunately, because of this deadly pandemic, we had a very terrible dis- you know, uh, display of competency with how we handle our June primary elections. We were able to get a massive turnout of folks, but we we did not prepare for some of the technical issues that we were going to have with the voting machines. Therefore, consequently, we made a decision as Democrats to really target a lot of these senior citizens who have traditionally voted by mail or absentee. But because of COVID, we were anticipating that a lot of them were actually going to be scared to come out of their homes to vote early. And so going into the November election, when I start seeing the absentee ballot applications going up, particularly for people who we know have a voting history of voting Democrats, that was the first clear sign to me that I knew that we were heading in the right direction. And so we knew that older white men typically voted more Republicans than they did with Democrats, but we knew that we could actually target older white women and older Hispanic, uh, Latino women and Asian women, um, that if they were given the clear instructions on how to fill out the application to request the absentee ballot, which, by the way, Secretary Rappensberger did that. Got to give him some credit. I mean, you guys have learned this about me. I call balls and strikes. He sent out an absentee ballot application to all voters in the primaries. Republicans lost their minds. They said, oh, my God, if you start teaching and allowing Democrats to uh, figure out how they could gain the vote with absentee and vote by mail, we're going to lose. Well, that's what happened. And so we went from just having an election day strategy and early vote strategy to now, oh, Democrats, we know how to actually legally and ethically encourage our voters to vote by mail and to vote absentee. Uh, and so we, you know, that was, that was really big for us. And then lastly, people of color. Uh, I say this to all, all the time to my friends and majority of my friends are people of color is that Atlanta is where you want to be. The, sur- the suburban areas are where you want to be. I mean, we're, I think, the best city in the world. And so when we start seeing the demographic shifts, you know, Stacey Abrams talked a lot about this in 2018. Beyond the voter registration, we started to see that Georgia was coming browner and browner and browner every single day. But unfortunately, they were not all registered. And even the ones that were registered, they were not turning out at the rate that we needed them to. And so all three of your principles, your pillars, Mike, that you laid out is the reason why I think you guys need to quadruple down. Uh, in Georgia, because not only are we going to continue to win in 2022, I suspect that if the numbers continue to go 
the direction that you just laid out with college-educated voters, older voters, and more importantly, people of color, which the Georgia Republicans here are trying to, uh, you know, attract more black male voters. But if we as Democrats continue to make sure that we hold these people of color as strong Democratic stronghold voters, then I believe that we will retain this power in Georgia because people forget we were once blue. We just lost it in 2002. I don't know if we'll have an 18 year streak like the Republicans did, but I think those three principles that you just laid out that what you guys look for to where you're going to invest your money. I think Georgia is exactly where you need to be. And I would just encourage you to stay here because we're going to continue to build on this momentum. That's helpful. That's fascinating. I mean, it must be great to be in a state to see kind of the literally all these demographic transformations happening. You know, I'm, I'm in California. We just don't have contested races anymore. But to see like this, this tug of war going on, is kind of cool. But I also tell you, which is why I'm very happy that Mayor Bottoms is, is doing this. She just launched this new super PAC called Battleground Georgia. And Mike and Susan, what they're focusing on is trying to bring out 100,000 more African-American voters. I'm about to tell you a number that's going to shock you. On election day, we had about 900,000 registered African-American voters who did not vote. Oh, I repeat that. On oh. election day in Georgia, we had roughly about 900,000. It was 800,000 and something. And I don't use the word active because my data person says that's when the Republicans can kind of tie you up. But they, that they, these people were registered and they did not register to vote. And what percentage was that of total registered African-American voters? Uh, I think in Georgia right now, we have around maybe 1.6, 1.5 million people who are registered. We had 27% of our electorate that turned out uh, that was African-American. And so here's the other thing about Georgia, right? This is why it's two narratives. And, you know, I want to be very careful how I say this. It's not critical of Stacey Abrams at all. Don't get me wrong. She deserves a lot of credit, particularly around her legal advocacy. But the vote percentage total for 2018 was the same vote percentage total in 2020. How do we win it, right? So if it was 27% in 2018, 27% in 2020, and I told you that there's 900,000 African-American voters out there that did not actually vote, if we press reset in Georgia and just let the electric stay the same, we're going to lose because it's, it's a known fact. White voters are going to come back out in droves. African-American voters, we don't traditionally come back out in runoffs. Um, Hispanic voters and Asian voters kind of drop off as well. So that's why you've got to recalibrate, expand the electric. Don't scare the white voters that were able to vote for you. But yeah, 900,000 registered African-Americans, for whatever reason in Georgia, did not vote uh, in November. It seems like you also need to take what Mike said about you know, finding that 5%, 4, 5, 6, 7% of Republicans either get, get them to change their vote or stay home. But you also need to have what happened with Doug Jones and Roy Moore and have that increase of African-American turnout with a common, it, it almost seems like need you need both, both things yeah, to happen yeah. at the same time, like at the same time and fight two different wars <laughs> and two different battles. And you have to treat them separately because yeah. you can't let them kind of seem as part of the whole. You need almost two different groups focusing on those two different things. That's why when you see Gabe Sterling, who is the guy who works with Secretary Raffensperger, coming out in a very emotional plea saying, hey, Senator Perdue, hey, Senator Leffler, can you condemn these attacks? Well, what's happening is, is that he's firing up the Trumpsters, right? But they're also suppressing their 
sort of base voters. But what we got to do as Democrats, because the other message that the two U.S. senators are saying is that we need checks and balances in Washington. You can't let Democrats control everything. You can't let them control the executive branch, the House of Representatives and the two uh, and, and the U.S. Senate, because they'll just run reckless with their radical agenda. And so there are, Susan, to your point, some Republicans out there that I talk to that say, well, OK, you got Biden in, Kamala's in. Well, what's, you know, it's not the end of the world if we kind of make sure that Democrats just don't run wild. And so we're having to push back on that narrative pretty aggressively here. Now that we're up to speed on what happened this week, I want to turn to the week ahead. So, Susan, let's start with you. What stories are you watching as we head into next week? Well, I'm going to end where we started and talking about that rally in Georgia on Saturday. What I'm going to be looking at towards the end of next week is what are those COVID numbers looking like? Right now, we've seen Georgia have an 18% increase in COVID reported cases in the last two weeks. Those numbers are going to skyrocket as a result of this super spreader event and other issues. You're also seeing hospitals getting close to capacity. This will have a direct impact on those two Senate races because those are on January 5th. That's a lot. That's that's a lot of cases between now and then. And uh, that's the numbers I'll be watching. Mike, what about you? I'm going to be looking for Republicans next week that may be breaking from Trump. I think that we could start to see a watershed moment where people are going to recognize the opening to start trying to contrast and be some of the early exiters. Uh, early, I'm saying, you know, four years too late early, but, you know, where people are going to start saying, seeing uh, their, the political opportunism of seeing the president going down to Georgia with this type of a message um, and seeing if anybody's able or willing to kind of occupy that space early. I, I'm not optimistic about it, but I do think that there's going to be some room, some cleavage is opening up and I'm going to see if, uh, be waiting to see if anybody takes advantage of it. Darren? I'm definitely going to be watching to see um what will happen at this, you know, sort of crazy, laughable victory event that President Trump is going to uh, participate in and and what he's going to say. But also, I'm going to be paying very close attention to the new voter registration numbers in Georgia. Our voter registration deadline is Monday, December 7th. And so we anticipate that there were a lot of people who were interested in registering to vote because whatever reason they weren't registered on November 3rd. I think those numbers will be very important as we go into the next week, which is December 14th, once early vote starts. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. And thanks to Theron, Susan, and Mike for making the time to have this conversation. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.